Brethren, I never object when a prayer meeting goes over. <laughs> I find that to be quite refreshing and healthy, and uh, long may it be the case. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to just thank you for the opportunity of being able to share with you from the Word of God over these days. It has been a joy. I've enjoyed the fellowship as well with individuals uh, as opportunity has arisen. And uh, it really has been refreshing to my heart to be here with you. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, just a couple of verses, verse 21 and 22, as we consider this evening the subject of the symbols of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've considered the significance of the Holy Spirit, that He really is a person and that He is a divine person. We've considered the sensitivity of the Spirit that how uh, sensitive he is, he can be grieved, he can be quenched. And now we want to look at some of the symbols the Bible has that helps us to understand something of him and his ministry. So we want to think particularly, uh, to begin with, about the symbol of the dove. And so it says in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying... The heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And again, we believe God will bless that short reading to our hearts this evening. I don't know how many times I've read through the Gospels, and um, it was only recently that I noticed in verse 21 that it says, uh, as the people were being baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, and then that little phrase, and praying. I don't know how I missed it, but I missed it. <laughs> For years, I missed it. But I thought, isn't that incredible that, the, in a sense, this was the official beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, really. This is when his public ministry began, and how did it begin? In prayer. He's praying. That's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? Um, and uh, that was a challenge to my own heart. But then it says the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And so I want to think about that concept of the dove. In fact, um, interestingly enough, if you go back to Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis and chapter 1, verse 2, when it speaks of the Spirit of God uh, hovering over the waters, uh, his involvement in creation, uh, the Jewish Talmud uh, renders Genesis 1-2 this way, the Spirit of God like a dove brooded over the waters, which I think is interesting. So what does that symbol teach us? Uh, well, it teaches lots of different things. First of all, uh, we, it's universally accepted as a symbol of peace. And um, the Holy Spirit, given free reign in your life, will not harm you. <laughs> Right? I mean, it's, it's, it is a symbol of peace. And, and certainly, uh, the only way there can be peace in an assembly, what is the basis of unity? It's the Spirit of God, isn't it? The fact that the same Spirit lives within you as lives within me. That's how we can love one another. Uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And, and so, certainly, it's a symbol of peace. Uh, the, <clears throat> the dove was a clean bird. And uh, very jealous of the purity of its plumage. So the spirit in the believer's life is concerned with keeping us clean. 
and he will quickly let you know when your plumage is dirty. <laughs> He'll convict you, right? That's part of his ministry. He has a convicting ministry. Uh, before we were saved, we were under conviction by the Holy Spirit. Even after we're saved, when we get involved in things we ought not to, it's the Spirit of God that is convicting us uh, because he's concerned about our purity and our cleanliness. Um, also, uh, it, the uh, evidence that he likes things to be clean uh, is seen in Genesis 8. And again, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. You're familiar with these. But remember when Noah was in the ark and, uh, of course, the waters began to subside. And, and one of the things that he did was he sent out a dove. But the dove returned because it could not find a clean place to land. And many Bible scholars have seen in this the fact that the dove comes back a second time, brings an olive branch, uh, but, but never see it actually finding a place to rest until here in Luke's Gospel chapter 3, where finally this, the dove finds a clean place to rest in the person of the Lord Jesus. Of course, that would tell us something else too, that before you and I uh, are indwelt by the Spirit, we have to be, in a sense, saved first, right? Uh, so, in other words, uh, the moment that you accept the gospel, that's, that's the cleansing, right? The gospel cleanses us from sin, doesn't it? We come, we admit we're sinners, Jesus Christ, uh, blood cleanses us from all sin. And the moment we believe, instantaneously the Spirit finds a clean place that He can come and dwell and he comes into us, now we're clean. And, and, and it all, all happens kind of instantaneously. But you get the picture that we, he can't come in until we repent of our sin and believe the gospel and get clean. And then he comes in and he takes up residence in our lives, although it all happens so quick. If you blink, you'll miss it, right? <laughs> it's, it, you know, I don't know if you ever think about this, but if you really sat to meditate on everything that happened to you the day you got saved, it would blow you away. I mean, just so many things happened. The minute you got saved, amazing transactions took place. Translated uh, from the power of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love. Uh, seated with Christ in heavenly place. We could just go on and on. All the things that happened to you. And I'm sure somebody's made a list of them. Probably Louis Perry Schaefer, if anybody has. Of all the things that happened to you the minute you got saved. But it's a wonderful thing to be saved, isn't it? And one of the most wonderful things is that you have a new resident in your life. The Spirit of God comes in. The dove found a clean place. And of course, uh, Scripture talks about the, the idea of being harmless as a dove in Matthew 10, 16. And, and then we also think about a dove in terms of mourning. And I want you to look with me, please, at James chapter 4. And I want to think about the Spirit of God in terms of this idea of the dove mourning. Often, the reason that a dove mourns is when deprived of the companionship of his mate. A dove is a very loyal creature and uh, uh, would be faithful uh, to its, its... You always see the doves together. You, know, you often see them as a pair, don't you? And the idea is that, that when one of them is killed or whatever, the other dove mourns uh, at the loss and uh, in James 4, we get a very interesting idea. Uh, I want to read from verse, uh, James 4, verse 4, where 
unfaithfulness is being leveled against believers. And strong language is used. It says, you adulterers and adulteresses, uh, adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy, or some translations say, yearns jealously. And the idea is this, that, that when we are friendly with the world, when we're committing spiritual adultery, in a sense, our loyalty is no longer to God and to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, but the world is consuming us. The, the spirit at that point yearns jealously. You see, he wants you in love with the Lord Jesus. And he, he, he just... It, really burdens him when we are involved in spiritual adultery. And so he yearns jealously. Isn't that tremendous to think the Spirit of God within me wants me to be in love and loyal to the Savior, and whenever I begin to drift and begin to, to, to love the things of the world, that's, that's when the Spirit begins to work as the dove, in a sense, mourning because of my departure. Now, I'm sure there's much more we could say, but I want to move on to another picture or symbol of the Holy Spirit. And again, these symbols are, are just designed, in a sense, uh, just like in the Old Testament, we've got lots of symbols of Christ, but Christ is the substance. Well, we've got lots of symbolic representations of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that actually find their fulfillment in the Spirit coming to live within us. And so um, I want to think about the oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And um, uh, one of the things that we'll notice in the Old Testament that uh, oil was used for anointing uh, both men and articles like the furniture in the tabernacle, all the tabernacle itself had anointing oil on it. And the idea was that the, the, the presence of the oil of God upon it separated it for God's use. It made it special. It was, it was to be, it was holy now. It couldn't be used just for everyday things. It was set apart specifically for God. And we're going to look at some of the examples of that. But in the New Testament, uh, the idea of the anointing is not with oil, which was a symbol of the Holy Spirit setting those things apart. But in reality, we are literally anointed by the Holy Spirit and set apart. And those that did have the anointing of God upon them could not act like other men. They had to be different. So let's look at Leviticus 21, for instance. Let me show you some examples of this. And the idea was the prophet, the priest, the king were all anointed with this oil, and it set them apart as different. Uh, they couldn't just uh, live to themselves anymore because the oil of God was upon them. So Leviticus 21 And verse 10, Leviticus 21, verse 10, it says, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes, neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his, for his mother, neither shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him, 
I am the Lord. And so what it's saying is there's certain things that this man can't do that might be legitimate for somebody else to do. But he can't do it. Why? Because the, the sacred anointing oil of God is upon him. Okay? And so uh, the priest was like that. And of course, it's all looking forward to the one who would be the prophet, priest, and king in one person, the Lord Jesus. But nevertheless, we've got here the, the example. Now look at 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, in verse 6. 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. We've got the king. And this is uh, David uh, when he comes to Saul. And um, notice what he says in verse 6. He said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And uh, we get the same thing again in verse, um, verse 6. Is that one I read? Yeah, verse 9. So, David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. No, that's not the right, not the right reference. Anyway, the idea is, again, that he was, uh, had the oil of God. 26 verse 9. I'm sorry, I'm not with it today. I didn't have enough coffee probably today. Uh, 26 verse 9, uh, David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And so clearly, when the anointing oil of God is upon somebody, it sets them apart. They, they have a special role, a special responsibility. And woe betide anybody that does something to the Lord's anointed, in a sense. So again, just uh, second, recognizing that they're, they're set apart for special purposes, and, and that's clearly evident. Of course, that was true also of the prophet. Uh, but the interesting thing is that it finds its fulfillment this Old Testament picture of oil, the anointing oil upon someone, it finds its fulfillment literally with the Lord Jesus. And if we look to Luke's gospel now again, in chapter 4, we're going to look at a lot of references, and it's hard to teach on a topic without looking at lots of verses. But it's okay. Turning the pages creates a draft that keeps you alert. Uh, it gets you to find your way around your Bible. It's actually a very good exercise. Uh, Luke 4, verse 18, the Lord Jesus is in uh, Nazareth, and uh, he, he, he reads a portion of Scripture, and of course he's going to apply it to himself. And so he says in verse 18 of Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so the idea is that, that in, in the Old Testament, 
the king was anointed with oil, which was symbolic of the spirit coming upon him to enable him to rule wisely. The oil came on the priest to enable him to minister in holy things and do it acceptably. It came on the prophet because he was God's man and God's spokesman, and it was to, the spirit came upon him to enable him to do these things. But they were all, in a sense, that the oil was a picture of what was going to happen fully in the Lord Jesus. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He didn't say the oil is upon me, but the, the actual fulfillment, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, another example of this uh, anointing. And of course, the word Messiah literally means the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And so uh, clearly what we're saying here is the Lord Jesus set apart for this ministry, prophet, priest, and king, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. By the way, we've been saying about our uh, neglect of the Holy Spirit, and if anything ought to convict us, this should. If the Lord Jesus conducted his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, do we think we could possibly do ours without him? You get the idea here? I mean, it's, it's because the Holy Ghost has come upon him. It says, God has anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed. How did he do that? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 1 now and verse 9. Hebrews 1, 9. Comparing the Lord Jesus, of course, Hebrews is going to present the Lord Jesus to us, particularly in the aspect of the high priest, our great high priest. And, um, uh, of course, the priests of old were anointed, but it says in verse 9 of Hebrews 1, Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness, and I want you to notice this phrase, above thy fellows. Old Testament priests were anointed, but the Lord Jesus, as John would say it, uh, and, and let's just look at John 3 and verse 34, just to put these two together. The, the oil of gladness above your fellows, and here's John 3, and we're going to tie a few things together here, I believe, in this verse. It says, uh, speaking of, again of the Lord Jesus, for he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Now, remember what we said the other night about in our own lives, about sometimes it seems that some people, the, the evidence of the Spirit is more, more clear in some lives than in others. Everybody is indwelt by the Spirit. And we said the difference between one individual and another is the degree of yieldedness, right? That's what makes the difference. And we said some people, it's bit by bit over time, as God's word points things out to them, they yield that area of their life. And so progressively, they become more and more a spirit-filled person in a sense because they're yielding continually to the Lord as he points things out. And is that what we call progressive sanctification? But then we said there are also people in a crisis that just surrender completely. 
Let me tell you, there was nobody more fully surrendered or yielded to the will of God than the Lord Jesus. And so in that sense, the Spirit was upon him beyond measure. Because every second of every day, he was yielded unreservedly to the will of God. And so here we have the example of the life, you see, that is completely dominated by the Spirit of God. Now, look at 2 Corinthians 1. This idea of anointing again. And the oil of God, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. And I want you to try and think about the implications of these verses. Now, it says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. What we were saying about somebody that had the, the anointing upon them, they couldn't just live like other men, could they? They couldn't just do what other people did. They were, they were marked out, they were separated, they were to be different, weren't they? Well, who's it talking about here? Not the Old Testament prophets, not the Old Testament priests, not the Old Testament king. Who is it? It's you and I, isn't it? The oil of God is upon us in a, in a sense. We're anointed. We have the anointing. Every true Christian has been marked out and set apart for holiness and, and for, for service for God. Isn't that a tremendous thing? If, if you could just get the gravity of this, this is an amazing thing. So we're not our own. We're bought with a price. We can't just live like other men live. We've got to live differently because God has a claim upon us. The anointing of the Spirit of God is upon us. Look at 1 John now. Um, because this that was marked out, and again, because we're in Christ, I suppose, that's part of it. But we, we clearly are seen to be anointed. And in the first epistle of John, twice he's going to tell us, chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John, chapter 2 and verse 20. <clears throat> but you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now, again, he's speaking to believers. Uh, verse 27 of 1 John uh, chapter 2. He says, But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. Now, what is all this talking about? Well, it's clearly telling us we're anointed. We, we, we can all get that, right? <laughs> That's good to know, isn't it? God has set us apart. It's amazing, isn't it? God has set you apart. He set me apart for his service. But it tells us, uh, in one sense, you don't need anyone to teach you. Now, is that saying that, you know, we should cancel this meeting because you don't need anybody to teach you? Well, what was John doing when he wrote this letter? He's teaching, isn't he? But what he's really saying is, you see, there were a group that, that had come around. They were kind of the... The, the people, kind of forerunners of what we call the Gnostics, they were in the know. They had kind of, uh, they had this, this special superior knowledge to everybody else. And he's saying, no, you don't need that, this special superior knowledge, because you have the anointing. What is he saying to us? He's saying, you have the teacher 
living within you. And it is amazing, isn't it? We do have the teacher, the Spirit of God. When the, one of the things the Lord Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will do what? He will guide you into all truth. And so we, we do, we, we recognize God has given teachers to the church, but we need to recognize that every person in this room, if you're a Christian, you already have a teacher resident in your hearts. And you read your Bible and he can show you things yourself without anybody else's help just through reading the scriptures, right? Because you have a teacher within you. And, and you also have a discernment within you that is given to you by the Holy Spirit. I, I mentioned to you the example that when I was a young Christian, didn't know much of the Bible. I was re- just saved out of Catholicism. I've been reading through the scriptures, but, but no formal teaching or training or anything like that. Taken along to a charismatic movement uh, meeting. And within a few minutes, I knew that it was not of God because of one simple thing. God is not the author of confusion. I knew that much, and this was chaos. And I got up and, le- and walked out, and that was it. Now, how could somebody who's a baby Christian figure that out? Because I had somebody living within me who revealed that. I have another friend. He, uh, very early on, he was taken along to a Seventh-day Adventist meeting, newly saved. He didn't know a whole lot, but he wasn't there a few minutes, and he knew there was something didn't smell right about this thing. And he left. And uh, I, I, that is the key, that we do have living within us this anointing. Uh, the Spirit of God coming within us, setting us apart for God's service, a teacher within us to help us and instruct us, just like the Spirit came upon these men of old to enable them to do things. The Spirit is now within us, enabling us to understand the Word, to, to apply the Word, and to do things in our lives, and it's a wonderful thing. Now, also, um, the interesting thing is that the oil, the anointing oil, was, was kind of unique, but not just any old oil. Uh, back in Exodus 30, uh, it describes uh, the, thing, the, the composition of the oil, and it was very fragrant. And, of course, uh, uh, greater minds than mine have gone into the significance of all these uh, different uh, spices that have gone into it, and uh, that's not my purpose tonight to get into those things, but uh, all, all I want us to see is something quite simple here. Verse 22, it says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices um, of pure myrrh, uh, 500 shekels, even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, uh, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil olive as a hin, and thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the, after the art of the apothecary, it shall be an holy anointing oil, and thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all the rest of it. Uh, verse 30, it shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me, uh, so on and so forth. It's the holy anointing oil. And so the idea is this oil was not just any old oil. It was very precious and it was made of spices, and you notice the emphasis, sweet cinnamon and sweet calamus. There was a sweetness about it. And if a person is yielded to the Holy Spirit, you know what it's going to do? 
is going to make a sweetness about their life, a sweetness about their character. Because what is the object of the Spirit of God in our lives? One of the things is to produce Christ-likeness in us, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit is... And then it goes into this beautiful description of love and joy and peace and and long-suffering and all these things. And so these beautiful things, really, they're a composite picture of the Lord Jesus. And so the Spirit within us, the the design of the Spirit within us is that as we yield to Him, instead of the stench of the flesh, there will be the sweet aroma of Christ-likeness that will be formed in us. Isn't that wonderful? Why would we want to ignore a person that's designed to make us sweet? Right? This is tremendous stuff, isn't it? To think that the Spirit of God uh, is seeking to do that within us. Well, we must move on. Another one. Fire. Uh, Again, speaks uh, to us. Uh, We see it in Acts chapter 2. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And um, in Acts chapter 2... Of course, we already mentioned about quench not the Spirit of God uh, in um, Ephesians 4.30. And of course, in that sense, the Spirit's description is that of a fire. And uh, certainly here, in verse 3 of Acts 2, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so what we see here is simply this. For these men in this upper room, they were all Jews. When they saw this little tongue like a fire sticking on each other's heads, you know what they thought? What would that remind them of? I know exactly what they'd be thinking. Tabernacle! Remember the tabernacle, pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. What, was, what did you know when you saw the cloud or the fire? What did it tell you? It told you the presence of God was in that tent, didn't it? And as they looked at each other, God was giving them a fantastic object lesson. The new temple is not the one that Solomon uh, built and was destroyed or the one that Zerubbabel built and Herod did a kind of fix-up job on. No, the new temple now is you. God lives within you, right? And the, the, the symbolism of the fire would just immediately uh, connect with them. So it speaks of the presence of God. It speaks of the holiness of God and His judgment against sin. Fire is always a symbol of God's holiness, isn't it? And so, again, the Spirit of God is is there to point out sin, to to get us to come to self-judgment about our sin. Uh, This purifying, in a sense, and making us holy. And then, of course, there's another symbol of the Spirit, and that is water. Let's look at a couple of references, John chapter 4, and I'm sure there are many other references we could look at for all these. This is just a a, a whet your appetite, cause you to dig yourself, and to take up the subject of the Holy Spirit in more detail. But John 4 verse 14, remember the woman of Samaria, Uh, she's thirsty, Uh, she's 
she, we, we sing that, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. She had tried the broken cisterns, right? She was looking for fulfillment in relationships with men. She, she is disillusioned at this point. She stopped even bothering to marry them anymore now. She just lives with them. Kind of no point going through the motions anymore. They're all duds in her mind. She's looking for a good man. She can't find one, a perfect man. Well, she found one this day. And in, in John 4, verse 14, the Lord Jesus says, Whoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so the Lord is offering water to this woman. And later on, we get a better explanation of it. We've already looked at this verse, but let's look at it again. John 7, 37 Uh, where it says, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, just like this woman was thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the idea is that we come initially to Christ because we're thirsty. And as we come to him, of course, he gives us that living water within us. And it's a picture of the spirit now within our lives, but it can't be contained in here, right? The spirit, you can't, like, what does it say about God? Heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you. Never, Never mind this building, right? So you've got the Spirit of God living within you, but it's not meant to be contained. Out of his belly shall flow rivers. So so our thirst is quenched now. God has given us the job, in a sense, of allowing the Spirit through us to give living water to thirsty souls that are all around us. And it's to enable us to share the good news and to bring others to the place where they can drink and get satisfaction in Christ. And he wants to, he's anxious to, to, to go out through us and to reach a world through us. And I, I do believe that one of the reasons many of us perhaps miss out on the fullness of the Spirit is because we're, we're not faithful to share the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by that. It, when in Acts 4, they prayed for boldness to speak in the name of Jesus, it says the place where they prayed was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached the word with boldness. But you notice their prayer, they didn't pray to be filled with the Spirit. They prayed for boldness to preach the gospel. But you know what the Holy Spirit said? I'll sign up for that. I'd love to make Jesus known. Right? In other words, sign me up. I want to be part of that. Right? His job is to witness and testify of the Lord Jesus. And when we say, okay, we're going to do it, the Holy Spirit says, okay, you got me right there. I'm with you. Right? He can't resist that. Anybody that wants to make much of the Savior, he says, yes, sign me up. I'll help you with this. When, we, we was, when I was first saved, it really bothered me that I'd grown up in a city of a million people and I had never heard the gospel for 20 years. And I thought, how many more people out there are just like me? 
and, and then I began to uh, say, well, how are we going to reach these people? They're not coming to the church. They just won't come in. How are we going to get out to them? And so another guy said, well, you know what? We, let's just read the Bible and look for ideas. And we saw that, well, they actually went out and preached where the people were. So we said, okay, let's go do that. So we went to the city center of Leeds, and we got this, uh, this, these big gospel tracts, and we, uh, gospel texts, and we, we would go and put them on a kind of frame, and we'd stand on the street, and we'd preach. Now, I've only saved a few weeks. I mean, not long at all. Like, I, I don't have much theological nous at this point. But I knew people were lost, and I knew how they could get saved. But I want to tell you something. I'm just being honest with you. Every Saturday, we did that for two years. Uh, and every Saturday, I had major stomach cramps. I felt really ill. I was hoping it might rain or something like that. I mean, I was petrified. I'll be honest with you. And even when we got up and it was time to speak, my knees would be knocking and my teeth would be chattering. But it's amazing. Once we began, it's amazing the liberty and boldness the Spirit of God gave us. And I remember one time preaching, and a Muslim comes and stands in front of me. He's so close I can smell his breath. And, and, and every time I mentioned about Jesus being the Son of God, he said, liar, liar. You know, and yet it's amazing. The more he said it, the more I started telling him about the Lord. It's amazing. Where does that come? The Spirit of God just loves to use a consecrated vessel that's willing to be used of him. And people were saved. I can tell you, people were saved on the street. Uh, I could tell you all kinds of amazing stories. Uh, one day we preached on Acts 10, the conversion of Cornelius. A lady walks past. She's been reading that in a Bible that morning. She's just stunned. They're speaking on the passage I just picked up and read. So we invited them to come to a gospel meeting. And guess what the preacher spoke on? Conversion of Cornelius. Guess what happened? She passed from death to life. And her whole family got saved. That's, it's amazing. We would never have seen that if we'd allowed the stomach cramps to keep us in. But the Spirit of God met us there. And, I, and what I'm saying is that these rivers of living water are meant to flow out, flow out of each of us. And uh, he doesn't want to be confined. <clears throat> We've been talking about uh, revival. And there are special times in history, church history where there seems to be a particular fresh move of the Spirit of God, a, a kind of a, an outpouring of the Spirit uh, upon the church, first of all, to revive the church. And then uh, once the church is revived, a subsequent awakening amongst the unsaved community. And this has happened many times uh, throughout church history. Uh, and uh, one of the scriptures in the Old Testament, it's, kind of interesting, but it fits in with this. Uh, Isaiah 44, verse 3, uh, a promise is made. He says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and then it says this, and floods upon the dry ground. Then he explains it. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. So clearly, he's not just talking about a rainfall, is he? He's talking about the, uh, a time of spiritual refreshing that comes down from God and that, that affects your seed and your offspring, that, that revives homes and families and then uh, affects the whole dry, dusty community. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see the Spirit of God pour floods upon a dry ground? 
<clears throat> are we praying for that? I think we should. I th I'm glad to hear people praying for that because uh, when Evan Roberts, the Welsh revival, was asked what the secret was, he said, there isn't a secret. You have not because you ask not. And that was the answer, that if we pray, the Lord will do that. Well, another one of these symbols of the Spirit is wind. Uh, of course, the, the actual Hebrew word uh, in the Old Testament, uh, ruach, is uh, translated as breath or wind or spirit. And it's legitimate to do it either way. And so, for instance, right in Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, that's the same word that's used for spirit, of life. And the man became a living soul. So the idea of the impartation of life, here physical, but we would also say spiritual as well. Uh, we also see, and I just want to kind of point these things out and, and then we'll kind of bring it to a close, but, but it's interesting when the spirit is pictured as the wind, the national rebirth of Israel, bringing to life something that was dead. What is Ezekiel told that he's to do in a graveyard? Of course, being told to preach in a graveyard is strange enough as it is, but in Ezekiel 37 verse 9, he says, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So you've got the rebirth of a nation is, is connected with the blowing of the wind, right? The the new birth of an individual is connected. Again, John 3, Nicodemus. Remember what the Lord says to Nicodemus in John 3, 7 and 8, when he's asking, how can somebody be born again? How can these things be? Marvel not, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And the idea, the, the picture of the, the wind connected with the Spirit is the idea of you don't see. It's in, the wind is invisible, but it's powerful. Right? So we don't see the Holy Spirit, but just like you don't see the wind, but you see what the wind is doing, don't you? I remember uh, in Florida, we, we had, were there during a hurricane uh, in the St. Petersburg area. And um, of course, being naive English people, you know, we're supposed to be in the bath, but we've never seen anything like this before. So we're looking out of the window, just filled with curiosity, at seeing palm trees kiss the ground. Now, we couldn't see the wind, but boy, you could see what it was doing. Everywhere you looked, you could see it was doing something. And uh, when the Spirit of God begins to move, you can't see him, but boy, can you see what he's doing. Like grown men, like trees falling flat on their face under the conviction of sin. Right? You can see what the Spirit's doing. And so in the individual new birth, uh, he says, you've got to be born again. And then he likens it. Well, it's the Spirit of God that brings this about. Convicting and, and blowing and, and bringing the Word of God to your life in a, in a powerful way. And then uh, not only is that you've got the birth of a nation, the birth of an individual, the wind is connected. Also the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2, we already mentioned the fire. But there was something else in that passage, wasn't there? 
Verse 1 of Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak uh, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so clearly, uh, the idea of birth and things coming to birth, a nation, an individual, the church, the Spirit of God is involved powerfully. And so all these are beautiful pictures uh, of the work of the Spirit. There are many more. We haven't had time to cover everything. But um, I, I guess my, my burden and my prayer for all of us is that that you and I will recover from our reaction to charismatic error. Not by becoming charismatic. Don't get me wrong. But by acknowledging afresh the need for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If my Savior, his whole ministry was based on being full of the Holy Spirit and dependent on God in prayer, what audacity to think that I can function effectively in the Christian life in my own strength and without dependence on him in prayer or his spirit. It is absolutely arrogance of the worst kind. And I have been guilty of it. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room. So I do believe before God that he would have us all reacquainted with this vital person, the Spirit of God. And um, recognize our, our desperate need of his power individually and collectively as a testimony. We need to be praying that God would fill this place with his presence. And that is not just claiming where two or three he's gathered, but in such a way that you don't have to say it. Everybody knows it, that the Lord is in the midst. I think that's what we should be praying. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we uh, just really have sold ourselves short over the last few years because we've become so scared of one who is meant, described as harmless. He's not going to do us any hurt. He's described like a dove. Father, forgive us for offending this holy dove and for being arrogant and thinking we can do this stuff ourselves we would again afresh invite the Spirit of God to re-engage with every life bowed before you tonight. You'd, you'd accept um, our cry for forgiveness for neglecting and grieving and quenching this blessed person and that you'd fill us afresh with that power from on high so that we might indeed bring much glory to the Lord Jesus. We pray that every saint in this assembly may not, no longer have any stench of the flesh about them but have that sweet aroma of the Spirit of God producing Christ-likeness in our lives. Well, Father, again, we just commend ourselves to Thee. Thank Thee again for this time to consider Thy precious Word. Thank Thee for everything that has been done for us. Uh, when we were saved, Father, we just amazed at all that You did and all You will yet do because on a, on a, on a single day, 
We simply believe that we were sinners and that Christ alone was the only Savior. Oh, Father, what a blessing we were brought into. We bless your name for all these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.